It's the Urban Parlay with your host, Sandra DuBose. Vibe with the tribe that'll take your stress away. Right here on the Urban Parlay. Bonjour and welcome to the Urban Parlay podcast. I am your host, Sandra DeBose, and I am so happy that you have thought it not robbery to spend this time with me yet again. I am really, really excited because I have a very amazing woman that we're going to have the opportunity to spend a little quality time with. This is my sister girl. This is Kimberly McRae. Let me just tell you a little bit about Miss McRae. She is a womanist. What is that, you ask? I don't know, but she's going to tell us in a minute what a womanist is. But she says here that she is one. (laughs) She is a womanist. Uh, She is just a, a mother, wife, grandmother. She is a teacher, poet, a singer, a musician, social justice activist. She's the daggone bomb.com, okay? This woman holds uh, a dual BA in English and African and African-American studies with a certificate in women's studies from Duke University. She has a master of divinity from Union Theological Seminary and from New York City, New York in a house, in a house with a concentration in theology and the arts. She is just all things woman, all things empowerment, all things love and We're just going to pick her brain and just enjoy her beautiful spirit today. You are going to be blessed by this conversation because we're just two sister girls and we're going to keep it real and we're going to get it in. So, ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, this is Miss Kimberly McRae. Welcome, Sister Queen. It's so good to be here with you. I'm excited for this podcast. This is amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. And so... We're going to start off, I asked Kimberly if she would start off for us on a very high note, because this woman, like I said, she is a poet, and April is National Poetry Month. And so I've had the opportunity to work with her on stage, working on a beautiful project, and hear her amazing poetry. And there is no better way than to introduce this woman, but to go ahead and give her the entire floor so that she can share with you a piece that she wrote. And um, I think you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about when you hear this woman and her poetry. So take it away, sister girl. This piece is called Anthem for You. And this piece was written specifically with the intention of creating healing and putting healing energy out into the atmosphere. So it is National Poetry Month, and I generally participate by writing a poem a day. That's what some of us ambitious people do. Um, This was one poem that I wrote um, a few years back during National Poetry Month. So here's Anthem for You. I understand that some days you will nurse lonely. You will argue with mirrors, swallowing distorted images, telling yourself, I am not this brand of ugly. You will select colors that say available and draw on a face that convinces you that the last person that doubted your beauty must be both blind and stupid. I fear in those moments you may forget in the middle of lonely 
there is one. You are the one who has overcome insurmountable obstacles. Maybe not the same as mine, but it was your mountain to climb and you climbed it. Scaled it to the peak and met with thin air but thickened resolve. You are a perfectly sculpted masterpiece of flaws and failures that makes you irreplaceable. You are not the catch line to a phrase nor are you the chorus to the latest song. You are a bridge, a bridge, the bridge between a broken yesterday and a whole tomorrow. You will never pass this way again and you are glad about it, but this way, this way will miss you, will covet your strong stance and sturdy stride as they try to pull you back. They won't even know why, but they will try nonetheless and you will not let them, you will keep walking will not exert energy trying to run from that which cannot follow. It cannot follow. They cannot follow. You cannot go back. They cannot follow. You cannot go back. They cannot follow and you will not go back. You are made of more than tearful moments and well-crafted insults. You are affected by words that sting, by words carelessly placed words carefully placed to harm you. You will acknowledge all of it, but never crumble. You are sand, you are wind, you are waves. You cannot be silent, you are waves. You cannot be still, you are waves. At times, white Captain Wiley, you are waves. You are ebb, you are flow, and all the while you are God's rendition of peace be still. You will lift your hands to the sky, reminding the sun, this spirit created you. You will walk as if a million sunsets are bowing at your feet. You, unbreakable you, and you will still be here after your spirit has evacuated this shell that you have painted perfection. I understand that some days you will nurse lonely, but you will be defined by the snow angels you left behind when you fell, stretched, steadied yourself, and got back up again. Peace. Ashe, Ashe, Ashe. Oh, sister. There's so much. I was literally taking notes because there were so many pieces of that poem that really resonated with me. The one I wanted you to talk about, you said, they cannot follow and you will not go back. And it felt like an affirmation. Like you were just, I just felt so empowered and so lifted up by that poem. Can you tell me a little bit about where did that come from in you? What was the experience that birthed that beautiful poetry in you? They cannot follow and you will not go back. Somebody needed to hear that on today. <laughs> you will not go back. Come on now. Right. Yeah. I believe in the power of words. I absolutely believe in the power of words. And I believe in speaking the kind of words that I want to see actually manifest in my life and in the lives of others. So when I wrote that poem, I was going through a particularly challenging moment 
And I am a survivor of domestic violence and sexual assault. And not only am I a survivor, but I still am willing to call myself a victim because that part of my story is not over. And I think there needs to be room for people who are still in the middle of being victimized by this trauma to be able to claim their victimization, but also claim their survival in the middle of it, because so often we we want to separate the two because we feel like the stigma around being a victim is going to be too great, or we're uncomfortable with hearing someone talk about being victimized. Right. So at that point in the poem, the they cannot follow and you will not go back. There are certain things that we absolutely have the power to call a halt to. Yeah. Some things we don't, some things we have to ride out, but we don't need to adopt. For me, being a victim of domestic violence kind of had gotten in my head that I didn't have much power. Right. And it, it got into my head that there's not but so much that I can do in the context of shaping and framing my life, because this is something that I cannot end that cycle. I cannot call to an end that involves a whole other person who has free will and is still doing and functioning the way that they want to function. But I, I forgot that there are things that I can absolutely call a halt to. Yes. There are choices that I absolutely can make. So they cannot follow. I have the right to close the door on some things that don't work for me. And I have the right to decide I'm going to look forward and I'm not going back to that. And I don't have to be pulled back in by anybody's narcissistic musings, Uh by anybody's manipulation, by anybody's stuff. I absolutely have the right to say a definitive no close a door and keep walking towards the next one. So that was what I was feeling yeah. when I, when that part of the poem came out of me. That was where I was. Just it is empowerment. It is affirmation. And it's declarative. It's not asking permission. And it's ministry. It is ministry because it ministers to the soul. And so what would you say because you and I both we share that experience, you know, I was a teen when I experienced teen domestic violence, but it's still that same stuck place and that same narrative that you know, you're telling yourself about your own level of worthiness and why you're accepting certain behavior and why you don't leave whether it's fear, whether it is you know, you feel like it's your fault. You know, you're kind of, you succumb to the manipulation of that experience. You know, you are a victim of your own low self-esteem for whatever experiences that you've had in your life that stripped you away of that feeling of feeling worthy and knowing that you're deserving of a better situation than the one that you've allowed yourself to get into. So what words would you give to women? Because we never know, that's the power of this podcast. It's a global initiative. People can be listening from anywhere in the world. And I know there's at least one woman that may be in a situation who she feels like she doesn't know how she's going to get out of it. She's not happy. She's not being treated the way she needs to be treated. What words would you give to her to help her shift her mind? Because that's the thing about domestic violence. Nobody can save you. You've got to save yourself, right? And how many times do we see when the family gets involved and your brothers get involved and they want to come, they want to beat them up 
And and then what she yeah. do? She run back <laughs> and she try to right. save them. You know, the cops lock them up. She go bail them out. I mean, what in the world? <laughs> right. Yes. And that's real. That's real. That is so real. Absolutely. She's defending them. She's trying to fight the people who's trying to fight him from hurting her. It's like the problem is in your mind, right? So what words of wisdom would you share with those women who need to have a realization and an awakening of their worth and their beauty? So much. One of the main things that I would say is define yourself. Because a lot of times we wind up in those situations. I I can speak for me. Mm -hmm. When I wound up in the relationship that turned into a physically violent and abusive relationship, Mm -hmm. I knew early, 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 early on that that relationship was not going to work for me. I have to be very honest. I remember the moment where I knew in my spirit and in my gut that It might be in my best interest to walk away from this. And I stayed. And I know that part of the reason why I stayed was because I, at that point in my life, was defining myself based on other people's expectations, definitions, other things that people have put upon me, instead of me being able to step back and say, who am I? Right. And what do I define myself as so that I can figure out what my life actually needs to look like? Right. So at the time, I had two children already by two other men. Okay. I was single. Those relationships had not worked out. Right. And I met this man. And I was at the point where, one, I was feeling rejected. Because I was already in my mid-20s with two children, and I grew up in Church of God in Christ and Pentecostal Assemblies of the World. So my father was a pastor and an assistant pastor. So being the daughter of somebody in the pulpit and having two children out of wedlock, and now I'm in my mid-20s, and at that point, you know, you're about to be an old maid. Because you're still not married. You don't have nobody. So I was in search of a husband. I was in search of a marriage. And I stayed in this relationship with this person. Because when you've been through horrible, eh, it's better, right? It's not best, right? but it's better. So, I mean, I'm looking at what I have been through and how bad it was. And this was kind of, you know, easy going. Yeah, he sleeps with other women. Yeah, he, he lies. Yeah, he gets missing for days at a time. But you know what? At least he's not a crackhead. At least he's not, you know. So, I mean, these ways that we make ex- excuses for bad behavior and we know it's bad behavior right. whether we're talking about somebody else's or our own okay we know it's bad behavior mm-hmm. but we make excuses for it because we have not taken the time to step back and define ourselves and say does that behavior fit within the definition of the scope of what I want my life to look like And who am I so that I can figure out what I want my life to look like? So the first thing I would encourage any woman in an abusive relationship to do is to define herself. Take a moment and step back and define yourself. If you're defining yourself as a queen, 
is this behavior that a queen would tolerate? Okay, right. You know, just real simple and see if the story that you're creating and you're living in matches the story that you're telling yourself you want to be living out. Right. I love that. For a lot of women who are honestly in that kind of situation, they would not define themselves even as a queen. You know, they would admit to having low self-esteem and not feeling good about themselves. And then that becomes the work of changing the narrative. So it's like understanding with compassion and with love and without judgment. How did I get here? That piece is really complicated because I think that if women felt like they could be honest and not judged, Mm. they might say they have low self-esteem or they don't like themselves. But because of the way that we shape society and the expectations that we kind of put out there, anybody that says anything less than I love myself, Yes. All of a sudden we got all kinds of judgment and, oh, girl, mm, you know, oh, you don't have good self-esteem. You don't like yourself. What's wrong? You know, so we don't create safe spaces for women to admit that they don't like themselves. Right. They have low self-esteem. So they'll say they see themselves as a queen. Sure. But do they believe it? Right. And and, and the proof is in the pudding, ain't it? (laughs) The right. <laughs> is in the pudding. And so for me, that question was more of an intimate question. So it's not about, you don't have, and, and when I talk about non-judgment, I'm talking about non-judgment of yourself, right? So at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what other people are thinking or perceiving of you. Your life experience is dictated by what you believe about yourself. So you have to ask yourself that question. I don't care if you put on your Mac makeup and your lace front wig and you contour your face, you put your (laughs) waist trainer on and you think everybody looks, you know, thinks you look like, you know, uh, whoever, you know, Sierra, Beyonce, however is how you feel about yourself that matters, not other people's perception. So that's really the question. How do you feel about yourself? How do you define yourself? And then asking the question, how did I get here? And I think that when you start to really unpack that and kind of look back at your past and pathologies and all of the things in totality that brought you to that expected end and you own that. I think the most powerful thing for me as a teenager when I went through that experience was owning my part of it. Yes, you know, we can demonize someone else. We can, you know, we love to play the victim, right? Oh, woe is me. He did this to me. How so never, didn't you stay? Right? Why didn't you leave? (laughs) You know what I mean? Didn't He went to sleep at some point. Why didn't you leave? You stayed. And when we can be that gut-wrenching, honest with ourselves to say, I'm 50% part owner in this here situation. Mm -hmm. Right. And on that part, I chose to stay. I made I did not make a healthy choice. But when you can do that and it's salty and it's painful and all of that. But that's where the power lies, because just like you choose to you chose to stay, you also have the opportunity to make a different choice and change the way the story ends. And that's, I think, the big, in my opinion, one of the biggest pieces for women that are going through domestic violence is owning your power, owning your part in it, 
and then being willing to do the work on yourself because you ain't going to be able to change nobody else. You can't love it away. You can't sex it away. You can't, you know, walk on eggshells enough to make it stop. You have to decide what you got to draw a line in the sand and then you got to stick by it. You got to walk that thing out. When you say this here is enough, you got to be a woman of your word and you got to be willing to walk away point blank and take whatever comes with that, you know? So one of the things I wanted to ask you as we started off and I said that you, you considered yourself a womanist. What is a womanist and how did you become one? (laughs) (laughs) I was in a course, this class changed my entire life. It was a class on womanist theology. Hmm. And it was with the late Reverend Dr. Katie Cannon. Mm -hmm. And she absolutely changed my entire, she changed my ability to develop my relationship with God, my relationship with the Bible, with the scripture, and also my relationship with me as it pertained to activism and being able to define myself in a world that often invisibilizes and erases Black women without apology. Wow. So I've always been a social justice activist. And until I knew about womanism, I adhered very closely to feminism because it was the closest advocacy for my for the gender that I identify with. Okay. The thing that I found with feminism was a lot of the issues that feminism is willing to tackle and willing to address don't speak to the nuances that impact black women. Okay. So I can empower women without empowering black women. Mm. You know, through through feminism, I can fight for equality. Yes. But the reality is, even if we get what you consider equality for white women, mm. black women are still just fighting to have their voices heard at the table. Because when the women's rights movement began, yes. black women were still in slavery. Okay. They they the women were in New York getting papers done and you know, trying to get the feminist, the women's rights movement begun and black women were still in slavery. Mm. The Spanish American war had just happened. So brown women were, you know, so I mean, there was, it is obvious that there were certain women that were excluded from Mm. the basic definition and understanding of what feminism was about. Wow. So when I came into this class with Dr. Cannon, she began talking from a context of Black womanhood and the relationship with God through the lens of a Black woman. And this, of course, womanist theology, of course, came on the heels of liberation theology, of which Dr. James Cohen was the founder. Um, so womanist theology even challenged liberation theology because liberation theology was a theology that preached liberation from the, um, it preached liberation and preached Christianity from the perspective of the oppressed, Mm. but it also adhered very strongly to the language that is in the old biblical text, which is all masculine. Wow. So womanist theology then comes and says, yes, we agree 
Black people, brown people, oppressed people, God is on the side of the oppressed and we are the oppressed. Right. And if we are made in the image of God, then that means God can look like me too, which means some language in this Bible needs to be representative of me. Right. So it changed everything for me. I actually, for the first time, was able to see myself in the image of God mm. by being introduced to womanism and womanist theology and being a fierce advocate for the Black community as a whole. And that's one thing that is unique about womanism. It is not just about uplifting Black women. It is the belief that if Black women are uplifted, then everybody, the whole Black community can be uplifted. Wow. So yeah, it, it was just, it was one of those moments where I was like, woo, yes, Lord. It just resonated with you. The <laughs> light bulb came on, right? Yes, yes, completely. Just the light bulb came on and I have been in love with this line of this this line of ethics and theology and this way of being ever since then I love my sisters I love black women I do you know and and will fight for my sisters <laughs> and that's a beautiful thing because you know society as a whole doesn't see us as united as we really are I think that the intentionally media will highlight the dysfunction and the brokenness as opposed to really shining the light on the reality that there are women such as ourselves that absolutely love being Black, love ourselves, and therefore we love each other and we celebrate and we support one another. And we don't see enough of that, that people just don't even know that we're getting down the way we get down. Let's talk about the religious piece because you are a minister, right? And so we also share the childhood upbringing of Pentecostal religion, you know, not being able to wear pants and jewelry and makeup and going to church 25-8. And it don't take all that. I don't care what nobody right. says. It just don't right. take all that, you know. But we both grew up steeped in the Black church and dogma and religion and all of those rules and not, I would say, this is just my experience, um, not really having a healthy relationship with God. It was more fear-based. It was more sin-based. You know, it, was, it wasn't about the love of God and feeling empowered in God. It was just, I'm afraid of going to hell and yes. feeling a lot of guilt, feeling a lot of shame all of those things in terms of the way that it was presented to me. Now, of course, there were some good things I did take away from that experience, but overall, it was not the healthiest for me representation of who God was is to see it as I didn't see myself in God. Just like you said earlier, a God that looks like me, you know, it changes your, your experience and the way that you see yourself, the way you move in the world, because you know yourself to be a, a person of power, you know, it's very different. So can you talk about your religious upbringing, being a pastor's kid, right? And then shifting your own theology to kind of stray away from that traditional sense of Christianity and finding your own voice, your own path to your relationship with God. What did that look like for you? 
my relationship with the church and my relationship with God was very complicated for me growing up. Um, I've always been a critical thinker. Yeah. And I came up in a household where it was more children should be seen and not heard. Of course. And where if if a directive was given and you had questions about it, the answer was because I said so. That's all there is because I said so. <laughs> That's it. That's you know? <laughs> so, of course, being a critical thinker, that was hard for me. That was very complicated for me. And I wasn't trying to be disrespectful right. in making certain statements or asking certain questions, but it was taken that way. Just in your inquiry as a child. Exactly. Exactly. So my relationship with the church, I mean, it was, I, I was in Church of God in Christ until I was 16 years old. Okay. And in Church of God in Christ, you know, I'm, I'm a girly girl. Okay, I'm a girly girl. I got on huge hoop earrings right now that come like all the way down. I, I my nails are green. Okay, so I mean, I'm a girly girl. I like all the little frills and all of that stuff, you know, to adorn yourself. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I was not allowed to do that. No, nope. I had questions about that. Yeah. I had questions about why the people that look like me can't stand in the pulpit. Mm -hmm. They had to stand at a podium on the floor. They were not allowed to come into the pulpit unless they were in the choir or, you know, but women weren't allowed to preach from the pulpit. Um, Questions about why children, basically there was no room for us in the regular service. So we were present, we were there, but we were just kind of bored. You know, but of course we we were sleeping on our mother's lap, said Sandra. <laughs> Girl, my mama wouldn't let you go. You bet not go to sleep in oh, church. Wow. That was my mama. You bet not. Not better not. You bet not. Okay. So I mean, church was just a chore. Yeah. It was another thing on the list of things I had to do, what, three days a week. Sure. You know, definitely. And I didn't enjoy it. Mm. I didn't enjoy it. Um, My relationship with God, like you were saying, being able to develop a relationship with God, my relationship with God was very much based in my understanding of my relationship with my parents because of God's being called father. And you know that that's our father. So my father was a provider. God rest his soul. My father was an excellent provider, but my father was emotionally unavailable. Okay. So my father wasn't the daddy that gave you hugs and went and took you to the park. And, you know, my dad was working to provide for his family. Right. So think about a a girl child having a relationship with a God that is only providing, that is only a paycheck Mm. or only provision, you know, and we're talking about a loving God. And, and I, I couldn't, connect those dots because I hadn't experienced that type of connection, you know, in my own family dynamics. So then trying to shift my thinking, well, maybe if I think about God, like mommy, no, cause mommy, mommy spanks us. (laughs) So it's like, okay, so God is abusive and unavailable. You know, this was, was, so it was, it was hard to honestly get some kind of understanding of a God that could feel what I feel and that I could relate to. So my relationship with the church and with God was very complicated most of my life. And 
not being able to ask questions and coming up in a generation where certain conversations you didn't have, there weren't conversations about sex. You, you didn't have, the conversation about sex was don't bring no babies home. That was the conversation about sex. Was there something more? Cause that's all I got. Was there something else we were supposed to know? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it. Don't bring no babies home. Right. You know? So, I mean, just um, being a critical thinker and also being somebody who does better. I didn't know until years later, till I was in grad school, my learning style, my learning style, I learn better when I am engaged. Yeah. And in order for me to be engaged, then that kind of hands-on interactive, you know, those kinds of things bring me in and allow me to actively engage whatever it is that we're talking about or trying to do. Sure. So, um, sure. It, it made it difficult for me to be on board with a lot of the preaching because I didn't hear anything that looked like me or sounded like me. And when I did hear about women in the Bible, a lot of the women in the Bible were, there were several women, the women in the Bible that were abused mm -hmm. and they were never talked about. Mm -hmm. Those women just kind of, you know, somebody might get bold and pick up that text and touch on it. Right. But Tamar and, um, you know, just the, the Dinah, and, you know, they're, they're these women. So the images that I had of women, there was Mary who was highly esteemed, sure. but also Mary sure. wound up in this, in this situation where she's pregnant and don't nobody know who the daddy is. And Joseph was going to put her away. And, right. you know, so, I mean, the, the ways that women were lifted out of the text mm -hmm. didn't work for my critical thinking right. in terms of being able to connect with this God that we're saying is a loving God and so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And, you know, so it, it made my relationship very complicated, yeah. very complicated. So when did it shift and how and how did you respond to that shift in being able to accept new information. Cause I think part of the process when you are steeped in such a religion that preaches to you that anything outside of what you are being taught is the devil trying to infiltrate, right? It is a move of the enemy. It's a spirit. It's a spirit you know what I mean? It's the antichrist, it's all of those things. So you, you buck against new information because there is this guilt and there's this fear that you are offending God by accepting something that is contrary to everything that you have been forced to believe your entire life, even if it never quite made sense. It's what you were told, right? And so you just hold on to that. And it's very difficult to be able to let go of the reins and still find God and find peace without running into guilt and shame. So can you talk about that transition for you? Honestly, where things shifted for me, and it wasn't a good shift initially, where things shifted for me initially was I was raped at the age of 17. Wow, I'm sorry. And that for me completely fractured whatever little bit of a relationship I thought I had with God because I could not wrap my brain around God allowing that to happen. Right. So it, it really, I, and at that point, I just rebelled. 
And I, I started acting out. I had some very sexually um, dangerous behaviors. Okay. Um, and I chose to, even when I was physically in a church, I wasn't there because okay. I wasn't hearing it. I was there because that was where I was physically supposed to be. Okay. But I, I wasn't there because I just couldn't connect with, right. you know, all this God talk. And I've been through this trauma. Sure. But where it started to turn around for me, as far as my being able to claim a relationship with God um, that felt like a right relationship was mm. really when I was introduced to womanism. And please understand that was, I was how old? I was 40 when I graduated from grad school. So we're talking, wow. I was in my late 30s. So from okay. 17, to my late 30s, it was this really tenuous relationship because I didn't stray too far away because I definitely believe in God. And the fear that you were talking about earlier, I was like, okay, I don't want to try it too much because I read in the Bible some places where God opened up the ground and swallowed people up. And, you know, so I was like, I don't want to be in that number. Exactly. You know, so I'm like, I don't want to go too, too far away, but I'm not that closely connected you know, so I'm kind of on the outskirts of trying to figure out what a relationship can be like. And I definitely preferred non-denominational churches right. um, because it didn't feel as restrictive as what right. I had come up in. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I didn't really get a change in thinking and a change, not just a change in thinking, but a change in my heart about mm religion and about my relationship with God until I met womanist theology and was right. able to actually see myself in the text and was able to, for the first time, ask questions. Because that was another thing that we were told, right. you can't ask, but you don't challenge God. You don't question God. And when we said God, it meant God, the pastor, your mama and daddy, you know, so <laughs> they're all God. It's, a, it's collective. They're all God. <laughs> exactly. So these were places that you did not ask questions. You did not challenge. You just did what you were told or else, you know, right. so being in a position where I could actually take the text and ask questions of the text and, and challenge it and, and talk to people that were willing to give some answers. But that was yeah. the thing. I think that's the thing that really convinced me was when I was angry, my anger was received with love because I was mm. told that my anger was valid, you okay. know? So it yes. was the first time I had been told that these different feelings, my anger, my, my, just the, the way that I was feeling actually was valid. And not only was it valid, but God wasn't going to reject me just because I was feeling an emotion that God was the one that designed it and gave it to me to be able to navigate this world with in the first place, you Amen know? To that. Yes. So yeah, that was the point where when I realized that I actually can ask questions of God and get answers and mm. live to see tomorrow, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> right. in right. all of that hand in hand played a role in me being able to reestablish myself with 
what Christianity means to me, which is being Christ-like, not all of this other stuff that we are, the judgmental stuff and the, you know, yeah. the, the othering and the better than you. And, you know, for sure. me, Christianity means being Christ-like. And if I'm going to be Christ-like, Christ um, communed with people that everybody else rejected. And sure. I happen to be one of those people that everybody mm. else rejected. You know, Come so that now. was where the connection and the link came in for me. Wow, that's powerful. That's very, very powerful. Um, talk about, you know, now that you are a minister, I'd like to know what, I, you know, I think that's really interesting, you know, a PK and now, you know, this experience you had with the church and now you are a minister yourself, you know, talk about how you knew that it was time for you to you know, kind of take on that mantle to be able to minister to other people with this new understanding um, of God and your relationship with God and share that with other people. And then talk about what you are doing, this ministry of Black women's self-care, how it all culminates and comes together and how you're serving the world and Black women in particular with all of those pieces of who you are, the domestic violence, the social justice, the theology, the arts, like it's all just one amazing gumbo in the way that you are loving on your sisters authentically the way you do. So talk a little bit about that. I am a minister. I am not ordained in any denomination and that is intentional. I did not want, I, I have never wanted to be ordained in a particular denomination and be held to that as the, the place where I quote unquote do ministry. I Jesus did ministry everywhere with everyone and was ministry everywhere he went. So Indeed. ministry, in fact, is just service. So I live a life that is dedicated to service to people, to particularly those who are oppressed, particularly those who are voiceless or who feel themselves or believe themselves to be voiceless, particularly those who are impressed upon to be a certain thing in a certain way and are not given the liberty and the liberation and the option of being who they believe they are called to be. I minister in those spaces, those spaces that a lot of times are unpopular, those spaces like, for example, my being a survivor and a victim of domestic violence. Right. I wrote a book of poetry back in 2017. I published a book of poetry called Dust Bunnies and Sparrows. It's chronicling my story of domestic violence and sexual assault, thriving and living through it. So trying to create a space that gave people permission to still be victims while they're also survivors and be empowered in saying that. That was really one of the things that ushered me into developing the Ministry of Black Women Self-Care because I realized, one, my children are grown. So they know, even if they were at home and that trauma had not happened, they still would not need me to be mommy the way that I had been accustomed to being mommy all these years because they're grown now. And I yeah. could either become a helicopter parent <laughs> and get on everybody's <laughs> nerves 
or I could develop a life of my own and figure out what taking care of me and what developing some joy for me and some happiness for me and cultivating joy and happiness and and some kind of self-definition could look like. So I realized that that was something nobody had taught me. That was something Mm -hmm. that nobody had actually sat down and said to me. And if I'm going through this and realizing this for myself, then surely there are other women and particularly black women who are experiencing this same thing, not necessarily because of the trauma that I've been through, but because that's just how life goes. Our kids grow up, (laughs) you know, they grow up. And so it put me in a place where I realized that because of the way that the world defines black women because there I don't there's some things you can't make prettier than the ugly they are and the world defines black women the world has a tendency from from the time that we were brought as slaves to this country the United States there were certain expectations and obligations that were placed upon black women this whole trope of the strong black women so many of us decide we just kind of take on these definitions that other people have placed on us without ever questioning them without ever having the opportunity to do something different or believe something different and as many of us say you know self-care oh I would love to do self-care I know a lot of women myself personally who the ways that we had been defining self-care which typically were massages go on vacation, get you some new time. You know, these are things that for a lot of black women have not been realities. If you are on a fixed income, a vacation is probably not gonna happen. If you are a single mom of four, like I was, tell me when I'm gonna get me time where I'm not so exhausted, I'm passing out sleep. If you are a survivor or a victim of domestic violence or some trauma that has you traumatized by touch, then a massage is not going to be self-care. It's going to be traumatic. You know, so just thinking about all of these things and the ways that self-care has been defined, that just like feminism and just like economic empowerment and, you know, all of these other things that people talk about as if they're freely available and accessible to everybody, self-care has not been freely accessible to Black women because of the ways that we have been tasked with holding the whole world up on our shoulders and being silent while we do it. And if at all possible, put a smile on your face. Don't drop no tears. Don't, you know. <laughs> and don't, don't you dare complain or be angry. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, so I wanted to create spaces where Black women could gather in community And I am unapologetic about the fact that the only people that are welcome to come into those spaces are women who identify as Black. Um, Because in spaces where we are in mixed community, in mixed company, a lot of times we wind up having to take care of other people when we're having conversations about our own pain. We talk about how something has hurt us and it becomes, well, not all Black men. Or it becomes, well, or, or we get the tears from the white woman that feels bad about how we're feeling. So now we have to stop how we're feeling and take care of her. You know, so I intentionally shape these spaces where it's just Black women and we're gathering and we are, if you're tired, it's okay. If you're just not okay, it's okay. 
if you're, you, you know, whatever it is you're feeling is welcome in this space and we have room for it. And we're going to love on you and help you to manage whatever this moment is that you're going through. And we're gonna call it community care and we're gonna share tools that afford us the opportunity to incorporate self-care into our everyday lives. So that is the basic premise behind the Ministry of Black Women Self-Care. That's beautiful. And I love that you said that because I don't think people from the outside looking in, it'd be like, well, don't all women need self-care or what's so specific about the needs of a black woman? But I love how you frame that, you know, just that us having to always kind of make concessions for other people. It's a very real thing that we carry. And when we are together and we are sitting in and sharing the pain and the experiences that are unique to us, that is a very, very sacred space. And we need a place where we can just totally not have to explain it, not have to apologize for how we feel about it, but really give voice to and express exactly what all of those nuances are that not everybody wouldn't understand unless you are sitting in our seat. And so I think that's a really powerful thing for you to be able to create the space for us women of color to just be, can we just be? And that is, because I think the wonderful thing that I love about Black women, especially is our power to be able to heal and nurture one another. You know, we do it for one another. We know, we understand the travail. We understand the deep well of pain or the anger and, and all of that. And to be able to love on one another as sisters in the way that we do there's such healing in that. So kudos to you for creating the space for us to do that. It's a blessing. It's healing and it's self-care for me too. I love being in the community of my sisters and the company of my sisters and knowing that those who come into the space are like-minded. We're here for the same reason. We're trying to be, we're trying to be whole. We're trying to heal. We're trying to be yeah. our best representative of ourselves. So it's healing. Yeah. I love that. I want you to, you mentioned that you have this book. So tell people how they can get your book, first of all, and also how they can be in contact with you. Because I know as women are hearing about this yummy place of healing <laughs> and, and deliciousness for Black women to come together and bond and, and heal and all this good stuff, many women are probably like, mm, I need some of that. Hi, sign up. I want to go. So on in the room. <laughs> yeah. So please tell us how we can, first of all, get your book um, so that we can tap into more of your wisdom and hear more of your story, how we can stay connected with you and how women can be a part of the ministry of Black women's self-care. My book is titled Dust Bunnies and Sparrows, and it is available on Amazon. And I'll tell you why I named it that. So I named yeah. it that because... Sparrows bathe in dust to absorb the oil that would keep them from flying. So sometimes what you think is the dirtiest, nastiest, most inopportune thing could very well be the thing that gets you to soar. Come on, somebody. I love that. <laughs> Don't we know that to be true? I mean, just in our Absolutely. lives, everything that we've been through, all the trials and tribulations that, you know, he used it and turned it around for our good. You know, nothing's wasted. Before we close, I would really love for you to share one more poem with us. 
So if you will, will you close us out this session, which was so rich with so many great nuggets and just wonderful energy. And thank you so much for just coming and sharing so richly and being transparent about your testimony and um, your transition, you know, in terms of religion and your relationship with God. And it's just amazing to see how God is using you today as a minister and through your poetry and through advocacy and all the work that you're doing. And so can you just close us out with a poem to, um, to warm our hearts? This poem is called Middle Ground. These poems have been writing me, scripting the tattered pages of this journal rebound in leather with the promise of eternity. My pastor says that there is no insignificant data. So thank you for the years and the fears, for the bumps and the bruises, for the failures and successes and all the questionable moments, for the tears of despair and the misunderstandings to those who thought that teasing was more appropriate than a hello, I pray that we have both learned lessons that have made us both better. For all those who called love a cold shoulder, I appreciate that you made me stand on my own and depend on God. There is no malice here. And God doesn't make mistakes, so we were all in the right place at the right time to fuel a productive today and add hope to a promising tomorrow. I didn't know then what I know now. But I do know the difference between help and helplessness, between hope and hopelessness. And I am successful because your prompting wrote me more beautiful, stretched me beyond the limitations, the insecurities, planted seeds of doubt that were pruned by seeds of faith, watered by tears of sadness that gave way to unspeakable joy. Morning isn't in the dawn of a sunrise, but it is that darkest moment where God sits hidden, tucked away within the promises that make the mystery of darkness so beautiful. So I found an affirmation of the sacred within the creases of my uncertainty. And today I am most certain that angels have walked with me every step of the way. And our introduction is not happenstance, but instead the most divine plan crafted. You blessed me. So be proud that who you are, who I am, who we are is enough to move heaven and earth until God has met us in the middle ground. Ashe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ashe, ashe, ashe. Amen to that. Thank you for sharing who you are in your beautiful spirit. You know, for all of you listening, I know that you have been blessed by today's episode and the ministry and beautiful words of Kimberly McRae. Listen, there's always going to be more great, empowering, liberating conversation happening here at the Urban Parlay. So I want you to tell all your friends about the Urban Parlay, because this is where it goes down, where you can vibe with your new tribe. And we're happy that you've taken this time to spend with us today. So until next time, I do bid you adieu. I wish you peace and I wish you blessings. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the Urban Parlay podcast. If you have enjoyed this content, please go ahead and subscribe and then invite all your friends. Tell them to come hang out and vibe with your new tribe. If you would like to support with a donation, you can do so via cash app at dollar sign Urban Parlay podcast 
and via PayPal at paypal.me forward slash urban parlay. Thanks. It's the Urban Parlay. Vibe with the tribe right here on the Urban Parlay.